You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Pentecost Sunday. 50 days after the resurrection. A day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles. What a better day for us to choose to ordain Gerald into his new ministry. What a great day it has already been. Praise God. A couple of years ago, in fact, two years ago last month, I was invited to be a conference, an academic conference at Yale. And I had never been to Connecticut, and I'd never been to Yale. And so I do what most of us do when we're going somewhere we haven't been. I check to see if any of my family have been buried there. What? You don't do this? You don't care about your dead relatives? Well, my living relatives have come to understand this about me, that we're going to be looking for the markers of our ancestors' graves wherever we might go. Now, this is not some morbid hobby, but I value learning about where I've come from, who my family is, what has brought them, what has brought me to this place, to learn from their past achievements and their failures so that I can know more deeply how to be me. It's the same thing that informs me as a believer in Scripture, as a believer in God, pursuing Scripture and looking in Scripture to see how followers of God have followed God in the good ways they've followed God and in the mistakes that they've made and the bad ways that they've followed God. Well, as I looked at Connecticut, I saw that I had at least two relatives that were buried in Connecticut, Reuben and Patience. And so I began researching about them. And what happened is it opened up a floodgate of family that I didn't know that I had stretching back to the early 1600s in Connecticut. It led me to find these notes from my grandfather, my ninth great-great-grandfather, a sermon that was preached on May 31st, 1638. So that's on this day, 382 years ago today. More on that in a minute. First, we want to look at a sermon, a letter, 1,955 years ago. A time when Paul was writing to a group of new believers, and he had risked death to go into the town of Thessalonica. He had been hidden by these new believers. And he had even been asked to leave quietly at night by these believers. He was surprised a few months later to hear from them and encouraged that they still believed, that they still fondly respected him, and they were still seeking God. You know how this is. You get a text message or an email from someone that you'd long since forgotten about, figured that they were either dead or had forgotten about you, and you hear from them? Well, Paul's message to this group for today is pretty clear. More and more love for more and more people. Our Christian witness is love. So let's begin by reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. And if you would, wherever you're at, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, concerning the love of the brothers and sisters, you do not have any one need to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. 
And we urge you, beloved, to do so more and more. To aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we directed you, so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and be dependent upon no one. The Thessalonian Greeks had been taught by God how to love. They'd been in the schoolroom of God to learn what love was like. Now, this word taught by God is nowhere else in the New Testament. It's nowhere else in the Scriptures. And it's nowhere else in ancient Greek. It's only here. And it's not talking about God whispering in your ears, but talking about a relationship with God. A relationship where someone born of God, someone full of the Spirit of God, someone who's practicing the love of God, learns how to love others. You see, love was the trigger for them to take that risk, to be willing to step out and hide Paul and Silas and Timothy, to take that risk. And so Paul comes to them and he says, you know, you don't need me to teach you. You already know this. You've learned it from God. And even though Paul says you already know this, he says, I want you to do it more and more. Now, as we hear that, we probably say, well, yeah, Christians, we're supposed to love. Yeah, we know that. Check. We've done that. No, 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 no. We're supposed to love more and more. To grow in love. In my relationship with my wife, Donna, it might have worked for me to say I love you when we're dating, but if that's the only time I ever said I love you, then we'd be in trouble. What about on our wedding day or every day since then, me communicating my love to Donna? You see, I am still learning how to love Donna, learning how to be who she needs me to be and to love her in ways that are appropriate to you, to her. In fact, when I think about our kids, we have watched them grow up before our eyes. And loving them as babies is one thing. It's pretty easy to love a newborn baby. To love them as teenagers, well, that's good too. We enjoy loving them as teenagers also. But it's different. My love has to grow. They have to see me through my mistakes, through my weaknesses. They have to hear me apologize. They have to see me in times when I'm under pressure and to learn that my love has to grow into ever new areas of love for them. So this love that's to take place is something that needs to do so more and more and more. Now, as proof that we haven't yet mastered this, the greatest commandment keeps coming up over and over again in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the target there is others. In fact, that target is all. We're not just talking about the people that we like that we're supposed to love. We're not supposed to just be loving believers, but this includes all. In fact, look back in verse 12 of chapter 3, where Paul says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. This growing love is to be more and more love 
for more and more people. That target is all, not just the people that we like. Now, but Paul makes a bizarre statement. It's pretty odd. Now, remember that Paul was the kind of preacher that gets run out of town, gets thrown in jail. Remember that he's the kind of person that, that uh, is like a fireworks display. He goes off and leaves a few believers behind, but then he's gone. In fact, Paul's hated in the places that he goes. The Jews, the holier-than-thou, long-time people of God, the Jews, they don't like him. The Gentiles, they are the ones who have morality that's, well, whatever goes. They don't like him either. And the new believers, they're made up from defectors from both the Jews and the Greeks coming together to find who Jesus is and this message about a God who comes and lives among us. So these people that are taught by God, yeah, 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 I got that, that they're supposed to do that love thing more and more, right? Verse 11 comes this bizarre statement from Paul. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you. Now, seriously, Paul, aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your own hands? Are we really supposed to believe this? Who is Paul fooling by making this statement? Our ambition is to be quiet? How in the world did those two things even fit together? Some explaining is necessary. Well, Christians at this time needed to fit in. They needed to show the world, they needed to show society that they weren't a threat and that they were actually very positive. They needed to be able to show that Christianity was worthy of respect. They needed to represent Christ and the peace of Christ and the love of Christ. They needed to not just fit in, but draw people, compel people to the love of Christ where they see their lives and they want what the Christians have. It wouldn't work for Christians to be picking fights and claiming their rights. These Christians needed to compel people by their love. Love more and more. More and more love for more and more people. That is the best witness for Christianity. It's not going to work if we just love ourselves first and if it's convenient, love others. When it's fitting into our schedule, we have to stretch beyond our circle of believers and go to those issues that come up over and over again and love people with God's love in spite of them. Well, that brings me to freedom. Freedom is a word that we hear a lot about. We're a country that's known for our freedom. It's recognized for freedom. And I'm hearing more and more this word freedom used poorly and represented inaccurately. And I think people are missing the freedom, missing the definition of what it looks like. In fact, have you heard things like this from people either written or spoken? You need to not limit my freedom. Respect my rights. Respect my liberty. And people are waving these flags of don't tread on me flags as a banner of individual freedom. Well, freedom, as it's being defined by some of these folks, is I do whatever I want and you can't stop me. 
In fact, if you try to stop me, then you hate freedom. You're not a lover of freedom. Other words are being attached to freedom, like individual or like personal or my own rights to freedom. So today I want to offer a corrective that freedom is not about your liberty to do as you wish. Freedom is not about your rights to disregard the larger community. That's not freedom. It's an excuse, and it's a selfish excuse. John Winthrop, a lawyer in Puritan times in the United States, before they were the United States, was governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he spoke of liberty, he spoke of freedom in three ways. Natural liberty, moral liberty, and Christian liberty. Now, natural liberty is just the freedom that we all have to actually do what we want to do. And we're pretty much inclined to do what is evil. So that's, that's this natural liberty that's in conflict with what he called moral liberty. Moral liberty is the choice of an individual to do what is good, to do what is best for all. That kind of moral liberty takes a step beyond just doing whatever you want to doing what's best for the whole, for the group. Well, he took it further to Christian liberty, where Christian liberty is a choice to submit to the will of God and to secular authority. So not every claim to freedom, this unrestrained freedom, is good. In fact, we could go even further to the place that I would most want to go, which is Galatians 5, where Paul talks in this second oldest letter of Scripture, this letter that's also very close to the time of Jesus, in Galatians 5, 13 and 14. Listen to how he defines Christian spiritual freedom. For you Christians were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only don't use that freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love, become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this guides us into a very important understanding of what freedom is, a spiritual understanding of freedom that it's not about selfishness, but it's about being enslaved by love to others. It's not about doing whatever you wish. It's not about looking out for number one. It's not about me fulfilling my desires or that my opinion somehow trumps your opinion. Well, that brings us back to an understanding of freedom where freedom is not about me, it's about you. Freedom is about the other, which leads us back to the cemetery. I mentioned to you my ninth great-grandfather. His name was Thomas Hooker. He was a Puritan preacher in the Church of England. And when the Church of England officials heard about his Puritan beliefs, he resigned his post, and he snuck off to Holland, to the Netherlands. There, his church gathered, and his associate minister, Reverend Stone, all of them, 100-plus people, gathered up on a boat and traveled to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. There in Massachusetts, in Boston, he founded the first church. It's the first congregational church in 1636. And he preached there and served there for three years before going further inland 
to where Hartford is. And he founded another church, the First Church of Christ. Now, no, it's not that kind of Church of Christ, not one in the Restoration Movement. Remember, this is 200 years before any of us in the Restoration Movement show up. Well, on May 31st, 1638, he preached a sermon for a midweek service held on a Thursday. Just a normal sermon. And in that sermon, Hooker asserted that God calls us to choose wise men of understanding known among your tribes, and God will make them heads over you. Essentially, his teaching from Scripture, from Deuteronomy 1, about Moses and his father-in-law, led him to emphasize that the people have the right to choose rulers and to limit their power and to limit their place of power. So the phrase that you see ahead of you that's echoed through the centuries is this phrase, that the foundation of authority is laid firstly in the free consent of the people. Well, this teaching caught hold of not just his church, but the two river colonies in Connecticut. Within six months, those three colonies got together, Windsor, Hartford, and Wethersfield, and they drew up what's called the Fundamental Orders on January 14, 1639. Now, this document outlined the framework where citizens were elected as rulers. When the world was led by kings and monarchs and magistrates, the idea of the people rule was something new. It was a radical step. This was, these fundamental orders, the first constitution in the Western world. It would lead to, in less than 150 years, the establishing of the United States Constitution in 1776. Now, in between there, the fundamental orders were to become a royal charter, where John Winthrop, that I mentioned earlier about his definitions of freedom, went to King Charles II and got him to sign these fundamental orders, granting an unusual autonomy to this group of colonies to rule themselves. Amazing story. And if you want to look more into this, there's another fun story as King James, many years later, seeks to consolidate power of the, of the New England colonies and wants to, restore, wants to remove that charter. And he sends an ambassador over to get it. And the early rebels hide that charter in a tree called the Charter Oak that's pictured on the back of the Connecticut Quarter. Now, why bring this up? I mean, obviously... It's the 382nd year since this uh, sermon was preached. But why? I want to resurface something, something that I've not ever shared before publicly about my past by talking about Thomas Hooker, but to resurface some lost principles about how Christians live in the world. Our text from Paul calls us to aspire to live a quiet life. That's exactly what our founders wanted to do. They wanted to worship God. And Thomas Hooker came to a new land and he went further, ever further inland in order to worship God. He didn't preach this sermon on May 31st to inspire political fervor, nor to begin a country, nor to establish a constitution for governing a new nation. This was a normal sermon about how Christians were to act in the world. And while historians are right to credit Thomas Hooker for founding Hartford 
and for founding the first church at Cambridge in 1633, and for founding the first church in Hartford, the first church of Christ, and for being the father of Connecticut and the one who inspired the formation of the fundamental orders. He was simply trying to live a quiet life focused on God. This sermon was part of a Puritan routine of searching the Scriptures to better understand God and to know how to apply that understanding to our everyday life. It was normal in every way. As these Puritans let go of what they held to be true and clung only to God, letting Scripture guide them. The way to do this was to choose wise and respectable people that are well-known and honorable. And the model for him from Deuteronomy 1 was Moses and Jethro. How far we've come from common people working for the common good. I was pleased just this week to find this quote from Thomas Hooker from another sermon that I'd not read before. And here it is. If each man does what is good in his own eyes and proceeds according to his own pleasures so that none may cross him or control him by any power, there must of necessity follow distraction and the desolation of the whole. It is the highest law in all policy, civil or spiritual, to preserve the good of the whole. And this, at this all must aim, and unto this all must be subordinate. Translation, if you do what's good in your own eyes, you will lead to destroy the whole. Our goal must be to preserve the good of the whole, to love all. This is freedom. Freedom that's restricted. Freedom that's limited and guided by love. If it's not good for us, then it shouldn't be good for me. Lest we glorify the past and founding fathers excessively, it's really important to qualify. Because when they talked about freedom, let's just be clear, they weren't talking about women. They weren't talking about men who didn't own land. They weren't talking about enslaved Africans, nor the many, many native populations that were all across North America. When we speak glowingly of returning to an America that was bygone and far, far away, we promote a tragic white myth because it doesn't adequately acknowledge the abuses of the freedoms of each of those groups of women and poorer men and African-American slaves. Abuses that today still affect the education level, the employment, the income level, the housing opportunities, and much, much more for these people. But even the failures of freedom can be a reminder to grow in love, to love more and more people, to include all in our love. We must advance and move beyond our past to live in a freedom of love. As Paul says, to increase in love, to grow more and more in our love towards one another and toward all. That means that freedom is not the right of two white males to make a citizen's arrest on a black male jogging through a neighborhood. That kind of freedom is a tragedy. We've all been grieving Ahmad Arbery and his death as he was shot by two men who were just trying to 
take things into their own hands in Georgia. Or even this week, of George Floyd, who was killed by the knee of Minnesota police officer. These remind us that different races are treated differently. And it just should not be that someone accused of a crime faces a death sentence on the curb of a street right after it happens. That is not America. True freedom is limited by love. Love does not allow freedom to cross the lines of what is good for the common good. Love doesn't permit a freedom where we do what is right in our own eyes and harm others. Freedom is restricted by love. People abusing freedom are put in jail and they must stand trial. Freedom requires some restrictions. These poor understandings of freedom that are guided by individual freedom or personal freedom or my rights lead to a self-righteousness and to taking justice into our own hands. That's not freedom, but inexcusable self-indulgence. Freedom works for the good of all. We cannot say that slavery or the elimination of native populations, that's just in the past. That's over and done with. No, our love must grow more and more. We must love more deeply through the consequences of what happened five days ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, yes, even 500 years ago. So to summarize and to be clear, what we've learned today from Paul and from Thomas is that freedom is not freedom if it does not include the other. We must include the other in love. As Christians, the world needs us to grow in love, to have more and more love for more and more people. If you are to have a witness, a Christian witness in the world, then you must know that your expression of love is your witness to the world. Let's pray. Oh God, you have been with us through the centuries. And together we claim us, the us of all of us. Help us to grow more and more in our love. That our love can include more and more people. And that our freedom can be guided by love. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you for people that have sought you through the centuries. And help us to be those people today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.